0: You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California.
1: All right. One of the hardest steps for me early on in my deconstruction like 20 years ago was accepting Darwinian evolution. Like many of you, I grew up a creationist, meaning, of course, that I was taught to believe that the Earth universe was about 6,000 years old and was made in a literal six-day period, like six 24-hour days, which, of course, is based on a hyper-literal reading of Genesis 1. I was taught that this was the only faithful reading of Genesis. and If we didn't read it this way, uh, you know, completely literal, scientific, and historical, then the entire Bible was false, and so was Christianity, which of course is a ridiculous <laughs> uh, way of thinking, but such is fundamentalism, and I'm sure some of you, most of you perhaps, can relate. It's interesting though, when, when Darwin first published his seminal book in 1859, On the Origin of Species. He was still a Christian, and in general, the church reacted with with indifference or positivity towards his arguments. The thinking was that God is still the originator of all things and uses natural processes and natural laws to create and sustain the universe. But things changed in the early 20th century, especially here in the United States and Britain with reactionary fundamentalism gaining influence such that the church basically declared war on science and rejected evolution. But the reason why fundamentalists rejected evolution was not just that it challenged their hermeneutic, their reading of the text, and thereby, you know, seemed to threaten the validity of Christianity, but they feared evolution because it seemed to undermine God's power. They thought if God was all-powerful, then he would just obviously have made the universe in an instant, complete with everything, or done it really fast, (laughs) through supernatural means. An all-powerful God wouldn't use the astonishingly slow and painful process of cosmological and biological evolution over the course of billions and billions of years. Why would an all-powerful deity use such, quote, unpowerful means? Natural means to create. So evolution bothered fundamentalists then and now because it seems to suggest a universe without God. or A universe without an all-powerful God. And In a way, they're not wrong in this regard, to have that suspicion. Evolution does suggest a universe without an all-powerful supreme being. But I maintain this is a good thing. And I think we should follow the implications of evolution, where they naturally lead. I believe they lead us to a place where we realize that God is not all-powerful, at least in the way that we humans often define power. And that God is ultimately a God of change and process and becoming. Last week we talked about how the name of God that was given to Moses at Mount Horeb, the burning bush encounter, that this name was Yahweh. And the name of Yahweh literally translates out of the Hebrew, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. There's no verb tense in the Hebrew like there is in English. this possible future tense implies that god is becoming who god will be there is an unfolding and evolving revelation of god in history it seems to me that the ancient hebrews had this concept of god we're told that both moses and abraham two of the great patriarchs both of them negotiated with god at separate times and changed God's mind. Have you heard those stories before? They changed God's mind, which is a way of changing God. How amazing is that? I really like the point of view of a prominent theologian today named Clayton Crockett. He says, he puts it really simply, God is change, period. God is change. And he says that from a pantheistic or panentheistic point of view that doesn't draw a sharp line of distinction between God and nature, God and the universe, God and us. doesn't draw that line of distinction. Which means that if everything is constantly changing, everything is in motion, everything is evolving, everything is becoming, and it is, therefore God is as well. This is actually an entire field of study called process theology, or process thought. And it's been around since at least the late 19th century. I think it developed in some ways as a positive reaction, not a negative reaction, but a positive reaction to Darwinian evolution and the scientific worldview that shows that all of matter, space and time, is becoming, is changing is evolving, is in process. There are so many different ways, I think, for us to explore this today and what it means to think of God as a God of process and change, and to think of ourselves as children of God in a state of ongoing, constant process and change. Um, One of, I think, the great ways of looking at this Is the text itself the entire biblical canon the 66 books of the Bible you can track the evolution of God in Scripture in some ways you really can't at least I think we can the or or the evolution we should put it this way or the evolution of people's conception of God the evolution of people's understanding of who God is you can track this in the scriptures the Old Testament is often not always clear the Old Testament is often about this brutal, tribal understanding of God who commands Israel to commit genocide and wipe out the Canaanites, every last man, woman, and child. There is this God in the Old Testament who goes before Israel on the battlefield as a destroying angel. This is a God who demands regular blood sacrifices in order to forgive sins and be appeased, like many canaanite deities did by the way this is a god who demands the foreskins of baby boys this is a jealous and vindictive God who will kill you for virtually any act of disobedience if you touch the ark of the covenant you're dead you go into the inner sanctuary of the temple where the ark sits and you haven't performed the proper purification rituals, and you're not the high priest, you're dead. This is a God of religious law. A God who demands that a long list of religious laws be kept or else. This is a God who commands in Leviticus that adulterers, Sabbath breakers, practitioners of witchcraft, even disobedient children, be stoned executed. But in the New Testament, God, it seems, has uh, he's hired a good PR man. <laughs> because the God revealed in Jesus is not this vindictive and brutal tribal deity from a thousand years before who smites his enemies and stones those who break the Sabbath or who commit adultery. Rather, the God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth says, no, uh, that's not who I am. I love my enemies. I bless those who insult me, persecute me. I don't return evil for evil, insult for insult, and I command you to as well. Love your enemies. This God in Jesus says, yeah, Jesus is caught breaking the Sabbath one day. He's picking grain heads with his disciples. They're hungry, but it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be picking grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, the, the clergy, the, the long robes, we might call them, they catch them in the act. They say, what do you think you're doing? You know what Jesus said in response? Keep in mind, this was a capital offense. He could be killed for this. Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. We don't serve religious law. Religious law was made for us. We weren't made for religious law. Fascinating response, blasphemous, you might say. Jesus is this God who says in his famous Sermon on the Mount, "You have heard it was said in the Mosaic Law, and he quotes a passage out of Le- out of Leviticus, but I tell you, you've heard it. The Scriptures say this, but I tell you, he, re- he did this over and over again. Yeah, the Bible, you're." The Torah says this, but I tell you otherwise. He rejects the letter of the law for the sake of the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law is love, compassion, justice, mercy, peacemaking. The God revealed in the New Testament no longer inhabits heaven on high, not distant and far removed, or, and he's not located in the inner sanctuary of a temple somewhere hovering over the altar. No, he inhabits a man, Jesus of Nazareth, and then that Jesus of Nazareth is crucified, and God's Spirit is revealed to be poured out all over the earth on the day of Pentecost. And we realize in the New Testament that God now inhabits all of us, his people, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We are the temples of God, and the whole world is inhabited by this Spirit of God. Thus, the God of religious law in the New Testament is, you know, the, this God of religious tribalism is dead, crucified, you could, might say. The violent and vindictive deity of ancient Israel is dead, and a God of love, pure love, is resurrected in his wake. Here we see how God evolves too, even in our most sacred of texts. Just like everything else does in the world, God evolves too, it seems. But to be clear, it's not so much God who has evolved, in my estimation, but it's our human conceptions of God that has evolved and changed with us. And to be clear, uh, this is by no means, I'm gonna be very clear about this, this is by no means an argument for supersessionism. This idea that Christianity supersedes or is superior to Judaism or should replace it, such an idea is not only anti-Jewish, but anti-Christian by my estimation. We must remember that Judaism has always been a religion of reform and debate and the idea that one should evolve and grow in their understanding of God and and understand that God is not a God of religious law but a God of love and justice. This is actually a very Jewish idea. This is found in the prophets. Micah, Amos, Isaiah say this. What does the Lord require of you, O mortal, but to do justice, to love kindness, walk humbly with your God? Does God desire the blood of a thousand rams? thousand bowls no desires justice righteousness caring for the poor that's those are the prophets the hebrew prophets speaking jesus was actually just echoing them so this is by no means any kind of argument that christianity has trumped judaism or something no i think to be a good practitioner of any religion christianity judaism islam whatever To be a good practitioner of any religion, I think, is to embrace love and justice above religious tradition, and to embrace change and becoming, and a God of change and becoming. Embracing a God of change means staying humble, staying open-minded, staying curious, accepting that you don't have all the answers, and that God is ultimately ineffable, unknowable, to a great degree, beyond us. We've always got more to learn. This is, I think, what spiritual maturity actually looks like, that kind of humility, that kind of open-mindedness. The the process of becoming spiritually mature is analogous, I think, to the process of becoming physically mature. It's analogous to what we call growing up. When we were kids, we tended to take things literally, right, kind of black and white. We didn't understand nuance and ambiguity real well. We were naive. To be a kid is to be naive and kind of unsophisticated. Right? We believed in monsters and fairy tales. We were also very susceptible to fearing the unknown. But as we got older, the more we learned about the world and ourselves, we became less naive more nuanced, and and we learn that life is full of gray areas, and that mom and dad aren't gonna be there always to protect us. We've gotta learn how to be independent, to take care of ourselves to a great degree, and, and think for ourselves. Being mature means learning how to cope with the difficulties of life, but that's hard, right? Growing up is hard to do. It's painful but it's good for you to grow up it's good for you religion unfortunately is often about short-circuiting that short-circuiting that maturation process religion is often about arresting our intellectual and spiritual development for the sake of keeping us infantile in our thinking keeping us in the safe confines of religious dogma and tradition there's nothing virtuous about remaining a child forever i'm reminded of the passage in first corinthians when i was a child i spoke as a child i thought as a child but when i became a man i put away childish things he's speaking about spiritual matters right certainly there's something to be said for you know keeping our childlike wonder and awe for things i absolutely think we should stay childlike in that regard keeping our awe for life in the world I, i pray we don't lose that that wonder that curiosity and that zest for life is really the source of spiritual vitality so we should we should keep that but still grow up in our thinking and believe that I think, we, I believe, that good religion can help us do that. Keep our wonder and awe and our childlike you know, attributes in that way while helping us mature and grow up in other ways. To grow up in our thinking. I want to finish today by talking about embracing change and the process of becoming in every aspect of life, not just in faith and spirituality. Embracing change and becoming, I think, as a sort of life philosophy, liberates us from perfectionism and idealism. What does that mean? Well, it means that nothing is perfect and nothing is ever going to be perfect because everything is changing, constantly changing, so we can let go of our idealism and perfectionism. We can embrace imperfection instead, which is life as it really is, isn't it? We can see the radical embrace of imperfection as actually a kind of perfection. In other words, we can see becoming as a kind of perfection unto itself. A good analogy for this might be sports. You know, when the the baseball season is over, or the football season or whatever, a champion is crowned, right? But it's not like the sport itself is over. It's not like we say, well, the Texas Rangers won, won the World Series this year, so that's the end of baseball. You know, we've, we've perfected baseball. We're not going to play it anymore. <laughs> no. It goes on, and next season, someone else will probably be, be crowned. Hopefully, it's the Cubs. And so on and so forth. There, there's no end goal, right? It's not like we're waiting for the perfect team to co- come along so we can stop playing the game. No, the game is never perfected. Perfection is found, you could say, in the never ending struggle to win and to get better at the game. There's, there's a hidden joy, you might even say. There's a hidden joy in the struggle and in the competition. Your perfection is found in the act of becoming. It's like the old cliche the journey is the destination, right? We've all heard that before. That's becoming. And this principle applies to so many areas of life. What if instead of looking for the perfect person, the perfect relationship, the perfect marriage, which doesn't exist, or the perfect job, or the perfect church, or the perfect place to live, what if instead we looked at the process of improving our relationships, the process of improving our career or our life circumstances? What if we looked at the process of endless becoming, as a kind of wholeness unto itself, a kind of perfection unto itself. I'm saying that by embracing the inherent imperfections to life, we can find a kind of perfection in the lack, we can make peace with it, transcend it. This strikes me as a path that leads to contentment, serenity joy, but it means doing away with our idols of idealism and perfectionism that I think our culture teaches us to idolize and go after. We must crucify those idols, those parts of ourselves, for the sake of experiencing our resurrection, which is about embracing and celebrating life, life in the world, as it really is blemishes and all, imperfections and all. All right. That's my talk for today. We've got a few minutes left, and we always like to leave time for conversation, for questions, for dialogue, comments, all of that. Anybody have anything? Anybody want to talk about their process of becoming, (laughs) their evolution maybe with their faith? Anything in life? all right Angie
2: well as you were talking I was thinking about I mean the thing that we all have in common right is a lot of us came from evangelical backgrounds and we have you know I mean I would say for like Dan and I we came from very conservative backgrounds especially me and there's that you're talking about like growing up and becoming an adult and like finding things for yourself but then there's the balance of like my mom crying and telling me she didn't raise me like that when she found out I was pro-choice, you know? So it's like there is that balance of like, yeah, I'm growing up and we're figuring out things for ourselves, but like ultimately, I don't know if it's the control of the evangelical church of like my parents wanting me to believe exactly what they taught me and stay, I don't know, childlike in that way of like what we taught you is gospel And we you know, you can't question that at all. And I'm just curious how people balance that because I don't know, I it almost seems like the whole concept of you know, you couldn't go see the Ark of the Covenant unless you did all this stuff, it's like it's all control and 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 not to question, but they also want you to evolve in your faith. So I don't know. I don't know if I really had a question but it just it made me think about that.
1: I think a lot of us can relate to that. I know I can. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, this, this idea that, you know, how you thought when you were 15 years old, you should, you should be that same person when you're 50 years old. That, that's an amazing, you know. You should have the same, the same way you looked at the world when you're 15 should be the same way you look at things when you're 50 that you shouldn't progress, you know. yeah, That's it's tragic, actually, is what it is, yeah. Thank you for sharing your story a little bit. Leanne, yeah.
3: Yeah, I think it's tricky with parental relationships and certain relationships like right with my dad, it's like they it's like they want an arrested development. They want the dynamic that they had with you when you were fifteen and there was a hierarchical, patriarchal relationship. So I feel like it's I'm I agree with what you're saying. It's like you're changing and growing and then that can have some intense collateral damage.
1: Yeah. Somebody else this morning, comments, thoughts? Yeah, Jason.
4: It occurred to me a few days ago that <coughs> I don't have the um, weight or the, the sense of pressure that I had for most of my life around being who i was supposed to be or meeting whatever purpose was laid out for me or whatever like i grew up being taught all of that and that was like a huge uh not just guilt but like feeling of emptiness or feeling of uh like something's missing and it affected my whole life and it just i just realized like a few days ago like i don't have that feeling anymore i blame deconstruction for that i think it's a i think it's really um saving to to liberating yeah to not have that that pressure anymore and there's some kind of like uh i don't know secret sauce in (laughs) in evangelical religion i think that makes you have that you're like jesus is the only thing that can fit the missing puzzle piece you have something in you that's not right you know, you're supposed to be a certain way. God has a plan for you. God has a spouse for you. God has a, everything for you. And you never find that stuff. And it just, I mean, it's never there. And, I mean, I have family and friends who have gone their whole lives, you know, single, never uh, dated, never um, gotten any real job just because they were expecting God to bring those things. And those things never arrived. And uh, so anyway, I just, this is my, uh, what do you call it, praise report. (laughs) (laughs) That I don't have it anymore.
1: I was, dude, I had so much anxiety growing up that I was missing out on God's perfect will for my life. And, you know, I just, I didn't have enough faith or I wasn't righteous enough. And I'm going to miss out on, you know. The, the, the woman that he set aside for me, the wife, right? Or I'm going to miss out on the ministry that he's called me to. So much, And all my friends in church had that same, same anxiety, that God's perfect plan, right? And, and it's an astonishing way to, I mean, it's, it's really awful, actually. And yes, I experienced that sense of liberation, too. Um, but what a sad picture of God that is, this, this idea that, you know, you're not allowed to, you know, explore or be creative or experience novelty and figure out things for yourself. But there's this kind of like blueprint somewhere up there that's secret. You gotta wait for it. And if you play your cards right, you get it. But if you don't, well, you're gonna lead an unfulfilled life. You have no power, right? You have no power to go out and really create the life that you want, no permission. That's so sad, but, you know, I, for me, this, there's this beautiful other picture of God that is about novelty and change and experimentation and creativity and, and that we're invited into that to do, you know, and I think, I think that's much more life-giving and liberating. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Thank you, Jason. I just wanted to react to that. Anybody else have any thoughts? Yeah, Jason. The other Jason.
3: Hi, um, thanks for your talk. Um, I had a lot of different thoughts about, you know, that were stimulated by different ideas that we, we've talked about today. Um, I liked, I was kind of my mind was going uh, around about the, uh, the concept that God is change. And uh, you know, thinking, you know a lot, thinking with uh, laws and movements across the country. I work with a lot of folks that are like gender fluid or non-binary or trans-identified, and that concept of change. You know and what does that mean and what does it mean to be creative or in you know your part in change and co-creating change whatever that is but you know i think a lot about the um instances in the bible that we could look at and you know there's like uh even in the old testament there's the tower of babel where change just comes about like god just puts it he changes everyone you know we don't really know why per se i mean there's some you can talk about empire and some other stuff there but they just he, he just does it because he wants to <laughs> or because it's supposed to be or whatever you want to take from it there's a lot of mystery around it and, and beauty and then the other you know and I think about well, what is kind of is there a example of response to that and I think uh, like you're talking about the transformation through into the New Testament like with Pentecost where you know the languages have all been changed and everyone has to segregate into their groups and then but in Pentecost he doesn't, he doesn't put everything back into the box he doesn't like restrict or try to roll back the clock, you know, and make everyone speak the same language, rather he gives everyone the ability to understand other people's languages, you know, to change themselves to be bigger and more understanding and and to have this, you know, this this beauty of differentiation, and, you know, and it's kind of really fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, thanks Chase, it just reminded me of that at the core of christianity are these words like transfiguration right death and resurrection you know these these powerful words that are all about you know like you know conversion the idea of conversion it's, it's fundamentally about change you know and i think that's beautiful I mean, it's a god of god himself is transfigured <laughs> we're, we're told you know jesus right um yeah, I love playing with those ideas and embracing those ideas. I think there's a, a deep spiritual well there that is so life-affirming and liberating, I think, for us. Yeah, good stuff. Anybody else today? Yeah, Steve.
0: Who was the writer that you quoted around God has Change? Okay, I'm not... Okay, I'm not familiar with Crockett's work, but uh, it, for me, God Has Change uh, brings up Octavia Butler uh, who in the 90s wrote, a uh, science fiction writer who wrote um, The Parable of Sower, Parable of Talents, and there's a whole religion that has created out of her, out of those works, in of, around this idea of God Has Change, religion in sort of the modern philosophy idea as opposed to organized religion. Um, and I was just, it, it caused me to, to look up the quote, all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Um, and I, it's her, the philosophy that comes out of uh, what she was writing in her science fiction is really close to process theology and, and really interesting. Um, I like, I really like process theology and relational theology the the hard the the thing i was just going to comment on there is the the hard part for me is it's really easy to look in the past and see how god has changed it's harder to look in the future and see how god is changing uh and that's always sort of one of the big mysteries to me is to try to think to look at the world and say okay here's the direction that here's how is god changing over the next thousand years because we know that this isn't the finished thing you know so where will god be a hundred years from now what will theology look like?
1: Sorry. No, that's a great question. And I guess the the answer is, who knows? So remain open. That's an act of faith. Who knows? Let's remain open to the event of God, as Caputo would put it. It's an event. An event in the truest sense of the term is, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the implications might be. It's an event. God is an event. It's good stuff. Um, all right. Anybody else today? Good thoughts. All right. Well, let's let's conclude as we always do with our joint benediction. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life this world, and each other. Amen.